Hello and welcome to Drug Fix, the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is September 23rd, 2022. Finally, after weeks of waiting and wondering, Congress appears to have an agreement in place to pass the FDA user fee reauthorization bill. Republican and Democratic senators announced September 22nd that they had reached a deal to include the user fee package in the upcoming continuing resolution that will fund the government for likely a few months. The bill is characterized as practically clean by Senator Patty Murray, who chairs the Senate Health Education, Labor and Pensions Committee. Yeah, love the word practically clean. Um, our, one source told us that some small program renewals like uh, temporary extensions of the Best Pharmaceuticals for Children Act and things like that might be included, but most of the big policy riders that had been on the table likely will not. Issued, that means issues such as accelerated approval reform and lab-developed test regulation likely will be punted until after the midterm elections, where lawmakers could make a push to get them enacted before the new Congress is seated in January. Before we get to some of the other issues that, that are connected to this, I just wanted to get some of your kind of general thoughts on the deal. I mean, it looks like, I mean, do you think we're going to, I guess, is this the cleanest user fee bill in history? <laughs> it it seems like it to me. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it certainly seems like it's coming close, I guess. Um, I don't know if either of you know, but I mean, it's, it does seem like it's also a unique situation of being tied into the broader government continuing resolution, which if there's just a preference among some folks in congressional leadership, as we know, for that to just not become like a Christmas tree bill of things added on, um, you know, then you have to keep everything clean, very clean. Mm -hmm. um, so it, I think it may be just be unique dynamics this year of how it's getting kind of tied in with other legislation and not seen as like its own sort of ride along package. Well, yeah, that's the kind of the weird thing is that, this, you know, in years past, this was like it was must pass legislation. We had to do it. That was why it became a huge Christmas tree. And now it seems like that even this must pass legislation needs something to some kind of must pass legislation to ride, you know, to ride on. It's it, it's really unusual. Yeah, it's not a done deal yet. We don't know what the uh, exact language will be and, you know, whether we'll, we'll in fact go in the CR and uh all those things, but it does uh, seem to be a much diminished uh, um, piece of legislation if you think about it, sort of it uh, as something that sort of, kind of itself needs a vehicle as opposed to being a vehicle. So uh, I don't know what that says about uh, um, Congress's opinion of, 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 of FDA or uh, um, you know the sort of the current state of the industry, but uh, um, it uh, um, it does seem like there's not sort of as much of an appetite for uh, um, you know uh, pharmaceutical uh, um, reforms for kind of, I guess, we're following the, uh, the drug pricing legislation. There's a, um, there's a little bit of a, uh, um, people are, uh, just sort of resting and sort of kind of not, uh, um, don't, don't want to do anything big again, uh, um, after that, uh, after that happened earlier this year. Yeah. I mean, I think there are particularly on the democratic side, um, some, you know, non-pharma, but FDA <laughs> pieces of legislation, people have, would really like to get added to this, like, um, you know, um, updated regula regulatory processes for diagnostics or updating, um, you know, regulatory processes for supplements and cosmetics and so forth. Um, but 
you know, you can kind of see what happens there when you don't have bipartisan support necessarily or strong bipartisan support in such close, you know, the Democrats kind of just barely have control <laughs> of Congress. So, um, you know, you end up in this situation where, um, you know, you really have the minority party, particularly in this case, like Senator Burr, the Republican um, senior member on the Senate Help Committee, who seems to hold all the power, even though you would, you know, you would think Democrats should, in theory, have more negotiating leverage here. But they just, you know, when you're just that, um, when everything is just that close, and it, they can't sort of hold this and let FDA's funding expire, it ends up that the minority um, seems like has a little bit more power here. Well, we also ran into a situation where the House passed a bill that was really different from the bill the Senate, the Senate Health Committee ended up sending to the floor. And that the, you know, the, the big difference was the Senate Health Committee put in LDT regulation, cosmetic regulation uh, updates and um, and so forth. And the House didn't have any any of that in there. And that there were other differences too, like they, I think along uh, accelerated approval reform lines and some other some of the other things. But that required so much negotiation that, that I wonder if they just, you know, they kind of, they reached loggerheads and maybe even just ran out of time to kind of resolve all that. Because, I mean, you still hear talk, you know, the from people on the House side saying, I want them to take our bill. And like, you know, we're we're long past that now. Yeah, I mean, I know there people are still sort of holding out some hope that in the sort of lame duck session post November elections, some of the FDA policy come back around, particularly if they do sort of a pandemic prep bill, which is something Burr is more interested in, could be sort of a legacy thing for him since he's retiring, maybe some of this stuff comes back and if it really was just a you know they needed a few more weeks or month or something to to figure out how to get to the, all their differences maybe that'll happen but it's also again without having that pressure of needing to reauthorize the user fees to get them all to the table you could also see how it just sort of the motivation to do all of that just sort of disappears yeah it's a that it's interesting. That's really interesting. And, you know, one of the consequences of kind of, you know, kind of the of waiting for this to kind of, you know, just, to, you know, kind of waiting until the last, I don't know if you want to say the last second or last, you know, last few weeks to get kind of get a deal um, was that we learned that, uh, you know, FDA wasn't able to start uh, a biosimilar regulatory science program that they had they had wanted to kind of kickstart a little early. Um, it was supposed to be created as part of the upcoming biosimilar user fee reauthorization in FY23, but they had selected grantees for projects and research projects and um, things, uh, you know, early and and had actually allocated some um, some extra funds that were that had been saved over for use this in FY22 to be able to get those projects started, and because the the bill wasn't passed. They had to tell those grantees to, like to stop. Essentially, don't do anything yet because we can't guarantee that you can. We can give you, you know, keep supporting you, you know, your grants after the end of this fiscal year. Um, you know, so it, you know, it's 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 not not obviously the 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 you know the number one priority 
um, with this is, you know, that the, everyone knows that the major consequence of not passing the bill is layoffs or furloughs of FDA employees. But, you know, this is another kind of one of those lesser known kind of cascading effects that happens when, you know, this thing kind of doesn't um, doesn't get done in a timely way. Um, you know, which, which leads me to kind of a interesting, you know, question about the takeaways from this whole experience, because we've never really seen it like this before. One of the thi- one of the the things we talk about leverage, one of the big pieces of leverage that the FDA always had in trying to push Congress to get this done was that they would say, we if you don't do it by August 1st, roughly, we have to send out notifications to the employees that those of you who are supported by user fee funds may have to get laid off if we don't if if this doesn't get done. And they always said, that's a huge, a huge problem for morale. It causes people to want to leave the agency and go to private industry or academia, which we're always fighting with because, you know, to get good people into the agency because we can't pay them as well as these other, you know, as um, non-governmental uh, organizations can. So, you know, now that we've kind of, we've gotten to this point where, you know, FDA kind of never really said we're sending them out. You know, we have to send out the notices now. They kind of said, well, if we get some assurance that it's not going to it's going to get done, we won't send out the notices and kind of they never really did. So it is the fear of sending of the the fear of pink slips pretty much gone now. Do they did they lose that leverage here as we you know, we're obviously already starting to talk about Padufa 8, but, you know. Is is that gone now? I mean, do they have to come up with some other way to kind of induce Congress to do this? That's a great uh, point, Derek. Uh, you know, certainly uh, uh, last uh, time as well under uh, um, uh, Commissioner uh, Gottlieb, they did not send out the notices because they, you know, determined, oh, well, you know, Congress isn't going to meet the deadline, but they will get it done. And uh, here again, they're like, well, you know, we'll just decide that they're going to get it done. And, you know, it seems like they have gotten it done. But uh, at a uh, um, at a certain point, do um, uh, FDA leaders just decide to not even worry about that uh, that dance? Because we're kind of this whole like, well, is it, you know, is it layoff? Is it furloughs? It's sort of that that kind of takes up a lot of uh, brain space on uh, um, that, uh, you know, sort of uh, FDA or sort of could be used, uh, could be using for something else. And, uh, you know, I guess you, uh, um would have never thought that the uh, the government itself would sort of kind of broadly shut down, and yet we've seen that in the um, you know in the last decade or so happen as uh, um, as well. And so uh, you know, given that sort of kind of that they are uh, inching closer and closer to uh, um, not meeting the Padufa deadline, do you think it's uh, you know next cycle do they actually miss it and they actually have to do sort of kind of do uh, um, uh, you know do carryover spending or uh, um, uh, you know, uh, maybe a cycle after that they do uh, they do layoffs, and you're uh, you're right that it uh, um, that the the threat is absence, but sort of kind of but the uh, the fear is uh, absence as uh, um, as well on Congress's part that sort of kind of that there uh, there could be a lapse, and so I think we will maybe see some uh, some disruptions in the uh, in the programming cycles to come because there's just sort of increasing uh, um, disinterest, uh, if I can use a double negative to uh, um, to uh, to seeing sort of kind of FDA suffer by uh, from on this. Yeah, I I worry about the lack of urgency 
you know, especially as, you know, like you said, as we get as we get to the end here, because, you know, the last thing you want is to start sending people home, even if it is even if you can make it, you know, a furlough and, and just do it that way. You know, I mean, we've all we've seen with the government shutdowns, the kind of ripple effects that that has. And, you know, and the this the the uncertainty is probably the biggest the biggest problem with it all, because no one knows when it's going to when the bill is going to get passed. So no one, you know, people are kind of questioning, you know, what is my application going to get reviewed? And FDA has to kind of come out and, and kind of reassure people that, yes, we're going to get these things done or these are the things we're not going to do or, you know, and, and so forth. And it, yeah, I just the that that's just a dangerous game to play, I think. Next, we're going to discuss President Biden and the next stage of the COVID-19 pandemic. Biden made waves when he said during a September 18th, 60 Minutes interview that the pandemic is over. That, of course, sparked many counter opinions, arguing that there still were many problems associated with COVID-19 and that a surge in cases was still possible in the coming months. But many people also have been pushing the president to formally declare that the COVID-19 emergency is, in fact, over, which could affect the FDA. The emergency use authorization, which allows the FDA to more quickly make vaccines, therapeutics and tests available, is contingent on the public health emergency being declared. Our colleague Mike McCann argues that the FDA will not be affected much if the federal public health emergency is ended because there are multiple public health emergencies. And, you know, if if the White House ends its emergency, the FDA can keep the emergency that it has in place. But I'm curious if you all think that, you know, that is the case or you know, will will HHS be pushed to end its emergency declaration, which is the one that gives FDA the power to use the EUA authority? Or will we, you know, do you think it's more likely that we end up with kind of just a, a running COVID-19 emergency and legal definition for, you know, several more years? I, I, I know in his, his article, Mike pointed out, you know, for MERS, for example, which I, I don't think is a disease people in the U.S. think about much, you yeah. know, that public, that more broader public health emergency was ended a long time ago, but there's still that lingering EUA authority that was given to FDA still exists. And I know whew, this, I don't, this is at least a year ago now, probably longer that I did a piece looking at sort of just the proliferation and the unusual amount of use of the EUAs during the COVID process compared to in the past. But actually, if you if you look and go through EUAs and, and the authority on FDA's website, it's not just MERS. There are a lot of um, yep. products um, or particularly diagnostics and so forth where that EUA authority has lingered long after I think people would think of us being in sort of an emergency situation. So, I mean, if past precedent is any guide, I don't necessarily see them working to, you know, put FDA in an awkward place with these EUAs, which we know um, we don't just want to, you know, have to not have access to certain products, right? Like certain uses of the vaccines are still under EUAs. Some of the, you know, therapeutics, you have, you know, tons of tests and so forth. And, you know, nobody, again, I mean, even Biden tried to be a little bit careful, you know, regardless of whether we're in this sort of emergency state or pandemic state and what that means. I mean, 
we COVID is if you look at like the daily, weekly um, death counts, it's one of the usually in the top three to five causes of deaths in the U.S. You know, 400 cases a day is still well above what we see in a flu season. So we certainly need all those tools in terms of testing, vaccines, you know, therapeutics and so forth. So I don't think there's going to be a desire to push FDA to, you know, put them in a situation where they can't either work to convert things to full approvals. You know, I don't think there's be any, you know, positive of, you know, you don't want maybe if there's products where you you, you want them to get to that full approval status, like you don't want to not put any pressure on them, right? And just let them, you know, linger forever. But I, I also don't think anybody wants to cause a, you know, a bad situation, particularly going into the win- the winter where we don't know if things could, you know, easily get worse, um, you know, where we didn't have access to products because they pulled EUA authority somehow. Yeah, if this were a, uh, a normal emergency, if you will, it would just uh, um, kind of leave uh, the public headspace and uh, all the uh, declarations, which would kind of continue uh, unabated. Uh, now we've done stories about looking at the, uh, you know, we're coming up on the, uh, you know, uh, what, you know, the, the you know, uh, 15 year anniversary of, uh, you know, various, uh, you know, bird flu uh, um, uh, emergencies and uh, and stuff like that. So uh, um, it's, uh, um, you know, it's just sort of this odd political dynamic in which, uh, you know, I don't think the uh, the Biden administration will uh, either kind of roll back the uh, um, emergency declarations uh, because of all the, the practical reasons that uh, um, uh, you talked about, Sarah, in terms of really kind of the, the impact on, uh, you know, FDA operations and the availability of products, but also just for kind of its, uh, um, it has to, uh, you know, sort of kind of take the, uh, the very sort of COVID cautious uh, um, wing of the Democratic Party into account as well. Uh, you know, I could see a uh, Republican administration at some point uh, in the future for kind of formally declaring the um, emergency over, uh, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, in January 2025, if there's a Republican uh, um, uh, um, administration coming in there, that uh, um, could be one of its first acts. But uh, there probably will be some process that uh, um, you know, sort of allows for those uh, um, products that are on the market uh, um, to continue to be uh, be on them. But uh, it's much more uh, uh, symbolic in a uh, um, in a way that sort of past public health emergencies have not been, and so that sort of kind of takes on a uh, a dynamic of its own there. Yeah, does anybody remember Zika? Because we're still in an emergency <laughs> on that one too. And I think anthrax. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. Anthrax was like post September 11th. I think you know was that one was when that one was issued. So yeah, <laughs> it, it it's funny too that this is kind of you know we we've talked a lot about on this podcast about communications challenges that the FDA has run into you know related to the pandemic, and you wonder if this is another one that's kind of waiting to happen because. Yeah, if the if the White House says that's it, the emergent we're we're removing our emergency posture, but HHS keeps as FDA wants keeps the declaration in effect so they can keep issuing EUAs. If EUAs keep getting issued, is that going to confuse people? <laughs> are people going to be wondering like, wait a minute, I thought the thought the emergency was over. Why are you still using emergency authority to you know to do these kinds of things? <laughs> I I I think that there's I don't know I think there's just so much right confusion around like use of the word pandemic and is there an official definition of what a pandemic means and um 
you know, I hear, I think like all the time I'm out and about in the world and people, when people refer to the pandemic, they tend to refer to it in the past tense because I think they're thinking more about that pre-vaccine time when people were really hunkered down. Um, and again, like I said before, you know, COVID is still going to be impacting a lot of our lives in significant ways moving forward. And I think when, even when Biden was speaking and maybe how a lot of people think about it is more about like, what is the level of precautions or risks to people now versus then if you are, you know, vaccinated and can, you know, take some levels of precautions, but, and then thinking to like how people, again, communication, how people perceive EUAs. I mean, we're very focused on is a product, you know, authorized or approved here, but I think particularly with the vaccines, I think, the that sort of doesn't really cross the average person's mind right anymore whether their booster is that they're getting a booster that was is was given an EUA but you know even though it's you know pretty the vaccine is fully approved or you know is the you know is Paxlovid an EUA or an approval I just I don't think pe the average American when they're encountered with these tests or you know products really like I don't think that resonates with them and what that means in terms of how bad COVID is right now <laughs> these FDA authorities I do sort of worry though because partially because of that I do sort of wonder like is the is the meaning of an EUA being communicated to people <laughs> in a way and does that matter because I I know um I saw like there was an event I think held last week a rare disease event and I saw somebody tweeting they made the suggestion like well maybe all rare disease products should be given like emergency use authorization <laughs> flexibility <laughs> so I mean I think like there are things FDA has to grapple with and sort of the public has to grapple with about how people understand the amount of data <laughs> that goes into various you know products that they use and when it matters it doesn't matter but yeah i mean i think we've just we've gone so far <laughs> off the like deep end in terms of like different euas for, depending on what type of product it is have different standards and i don't know there, there's just like i think there's like could be whole like phds <laughs> written about all these different <laughs> communication aspects I'm not sure people can follow me anymore, but like I said, I, it's like so hard to figure out what people really appreciate of, you know, all the these regulatory flexibilities anymore. I was gonna say, yeah, it it it's tough. And 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 going back to your rare disease comment, um, that actually has come up. That actually came up early in the pandemic uh, when we were still under Operation Warp Speed. They were there were a lot of advocates arguing for an Operation Warp Speed like posture for rare disease um, re, you know, research and development because, you know, because they were saying that, you know, the, you know, there's a lot, there's just as many rare disease, people with rare diseases as there are, as there were with people who had COVID. So, you know, it was like, why can't we have the same type of um, approach? Um, you know, you could argue whether or not that's even possible, but, you know, it's, that was just going to add that. <laughs> Finally, we're going to take a look at another infectious disease problem, monkeypox. Sarah, you looked at some issues with the clinical trials now started for the therapeutic T-pox. Yeah, so um, NIH is actually conducting what seems like will serve as, you know, the pivotal kind of phase three trial for the antiviral T-pox, which, um, you know, people are hopeful 
works for monkeypox. It was FDA approved under the animal rule for smallpox, but um, smallpox and monkeypox are sort of similar viruses. And given, you know, all the ethical considerations and so forth around, you know, studying something for um, smallpox, they actually um, studied animals that had monkeypox in the trial. So that's sort of where this thinking um, that it would be good for monkeypox as well has come from in humans. Um, but we just, we only have really, you know, some limited kind of safety data um, in healthy people with the drugs. So we really need to know, like, does it actually work and what effect does it have and get a better sense of the safety profile and sick people and so forth. But um, early on in the monkeypox, you know, crisis, you know, there was an expanded access program that's operated by the CDC and the stockpile to make um, some T-box available to people um, through that, you know, compassionate use route. And NIH has sort of decided that because of that availability, they feel like people wouldn't be incentivized. The sickest sort of patients or the patients most at risk of getting severely sick with monkeypox wouldn't be incentivized to enroll in a placebo control study. So they're um, trying to enroll people with milder forms of disease or people that are not at high risk of progressing <laughs> to severe disease. And then they'll have a sort of open label arm where you know, the people we probably really want to know how this drug works in will um, just automatically get the drug. And then, um, you know, they'll, they'll at least like they feel like this is better than them getting it under expanded access because you'll, you know, actually get to follow them more closely and get the safety data and so forth. The problem, of course, is like, you know, at the end of the day, we do really want, you know, to have controlled trial data of a product to really know who it works in and how well it works and characterize the risk benefit profile. Um, and, you know, the folks I talked to at NIH say, if it does work in, you know, mild disease, you can sort of assume it will, should work in people with more severe disease. But the other worry is that with, um, you know, trying to show that it works in patients with mild disease, it's going to actually be a little bit more challenging. So say they don't hit the endpoint in mild disease, they're going to be left, you know, they said they, we might be left wondering, like, well, does it, would it work in a more severe population? Um, so, um, you know, I, I think, again, just thinking, you know, back to sort of how FDA has been thinking a lot about regulating in all different areas. You know, I talked to Holly Fernandez Lynch at University of Pennsylvania about this, and I, it was actually after Matt and I had sort of discussed how it kind of seemed like they were thinking about the trial design a little bit backwards. Usually you design a trial and then you would make expanded access potentially available to people who could not otherwise either qualify for the trial or really like geographically or physically could not access, you know, trial site and location. Um, and this was sort of the, the flip side of it. And, you know, I think it's just important to, re to remember why we, why we, you know, try and prioritize randomized controlled trials and getting that data. And that even if there are, you know, patients now you want to help we have to think both about, you know, what is the best way to help those people in, as individuals now and also get knowledge so that, you know, we're helping 
all of the future patients as best as we can going forward and not just um, continually leaving us in states where we, you know, we have products for people and we have to say, well, it it should work, it may work, you know, <laughs> you know, eventually you want to be able to get the answers. And there seems to be sort of themes throughout a lot of FDA regulation these days where we're left in situations where um, we don't have great data and we don't leave us ourselves in situations where we can ever get that good data. That is the uh, classic challenge with a uh, um, regulatory gatekeeper is that the the more you prioritize speed, the less you can prioritize certainty and the more you prioritize certainty, you know, the slower things, uh, the slower things go. And as you uh, as you mentioned, Sarah, we've seen this in a um, a bunch of situations, uh, you know, be it uh, um, in terms of uh, getting uh, confirmatory trials enrolled once a uh, a product is uh, um, on the market through accelerated approval, or uh, you know, even the um, the fecal transplant uh, product that you went to the advisory committee uh, um, earlier this week, in which through kind of the FDA um, enforcement discretion meant it was harder for them to even uh, uh, complete enrollment on their. Uh, um, you know, initial uh, registration trials, and uh, um, it's just a, uh, you know, it's a real public health challenge if you, uh, if you feel that obviously, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, patients in desperate need of a treatment should uh, be able to get uh, um, something, be that either through kind of access to a trial or through kind of help, uh, you know, uh, themselves and through kind of the uh, the broader community understand what's going on, but if that's not possible, then, uh, you know, obviously uh, expanded access has grown in, uh, um, you know, support over the last uh, few years, and that uh, um, you know should be a viable option. But if you uh, prioritize that over the trial itself, then uh, you're left with a situation in which it's uh, hard to really know sort of what's going on with the product. So I was going to say, it if the is the the issue here the fact that there was the expanded access program already in place. So if there wasn't one, would they have been able to just do the trial the way they wanted to do it because it was open label? Right. I think that if there wasn't an expanded access program, they probably would have designed the trial so that they included those higher risk populations or people with severe disease in um, the randomized control portion of it. Now, you know, Holly Fernandez-Lynch again pointed out, like, when I asked her, like, well, should we not have expanded access programs before you design the trial. And she said, no, it, it would be fine, especially in an emergency situation like this for you to start an expanded access program, right? Because that might be a faster pathway, faster thing to kind of get up and running than a clinical trial. But then sort of once you have the trial in place, you should sort of, you should design the trial the way, you know, the, to prioritize getting the answers we need on the drug and then you can tweak, you should be able to tweak the expanded access program kind of on the back end so that, again, you want to prioritize trial enrollment um, population. But um, I don't know, it does seem like, right, there's this like sort of, I don't know, it's like something like in the U.S. it does seem like people have this preference or strong tendency to want to try experimental products and feel like, there's this feeling of like we owe it to them to let them try it if they want to, you know, so and that once there's any sense that they've had that access, pulling it back seems difficult given again. Um, I mean, I mean, certainly like I think we've seen this in some of the with the recent cancer accelerated approvals that 
actually the drugs maybe had a survival disadvantage once you do the confirmatory trials, but like once you're, it's given any sort of regulatory clearance, whether it's under expanded access or accelerated approval or so forth, patients in their mind assume that's like the better product and the thing they want versus being randomized to something um, that actually might end up being either better in terms of efficacy, or at least, you know, if there's not efficacy, there's probably safety trade-offs to not having the active product. But yeah, it's just, it, there's all these um, dynamics, I think, again, around sort of our perception of like people feel like access to something, even if, you know, it's very unknown, a benefit is better than sort of access to nothing or something older with an established benefit that may not be as great as what they hope the experimental product will offer them. Yeah, it's almost like placebo has become like a dirty word now because, you know, I mean, before it was kind of like, you know, the accepted part of a clinical trial, you could end up not getting anything or getting a, a sugar pill or something. But, you know, now it's like, you know, uh, I, you know, under no circumstances will you, will I allow you to, you know, give me placebo if I'm going to, you know, sign up for this trial and commit to, you know, participating here. It's, it, 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 I don't know if that, maybe I'm just not thinking about it correctly and it's just been that way all along and it's just now becoming kind of getting more attention, but, you know, it just seems like, you know, that the whole, the whole idea of placebo is just a, a, you know, becoming more and more, you know, irritating or, you know, angering to people. Yeah, I mean, I think it obviously depends right on the therapeutic area and level of need. And I don't know, maybe there needs to also, again, be more education on kind of, you know, I've I've sort of looked at the stats before. I remember a number of times when writing about right to try, like how many drugs, you know, that enter phase one end up succeeding in phase one and going on to phase two. And, you know, you guys have probably seen those sort of like drop off graphs, you know, that kind of cliff of like what works in animals that ends up working in, you know, humans early on and then ends up going on to get approval. And I think um, that sort of, um, you know, and then again, knowing some of the, you know, detrimental side effects of some of these drugs are really watching it get <laughs> get discussed all the time. And I think there's is like this sort of like lack of appreciation of, you know, just because, you know, once you have some initial hope or promise of around a product, what that really means in terms of the end game of the likelihood it pans out. So I think, you know, maybe there's just more opportunities kind of to educate people about, um, the develop, drug development process, you know, and what we really know at certain stages of the, you know, process about th- different drugs. And I guess it's some, and it, a little bit too, you see, you know, a lot of, a lot of people, um, you know, that are, that are what, watching drug development that have some of these, like, um, uh, some of these, like, you know, like rare diseases in particular, like ALS, where, you know, you can't full, once you're kind of, once you kind of go down that path, you can't really, you can't really back up, even if you are treated with something. So, you know, like you, the, the more function you lose, it's just gone. And so there's this urgency to kind of, you know, if you have something that might work, give it to me now so I can at least maintain what I have as opposed to, you know, wait another couple of years and get, you know, worse and worse 
get you know before uh you know we determine whether it's it you know it it's a it's a, a effective treatment or not so yeah i that might be why we're seeing some of it more you know this you know idea that you know you don't want to take placebo anymore you know i don't i don't want to follow the traditional drug development pathway um you know on on that um on that front but um uh, th this whole thing is still a tough question. I, you know, I mean, you talked about the like, you know, people will be doing PhDs theses theses on this. I mean, this isn't going to be another one of those where, you know, it'll be debated in like medical schools and written up as case studies and and so forth. You know, uh, you know, in the in the coming years, as we all kind of, you know, as we work our way out of this and kind of feel more comfortable, you know, again. <laughs> Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to Drug Fix. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time.